Good morning again. My name is Brandon Barrett. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And again, if you were visiting, we are glad that you're here. Whether that's an in-town visitor, out-of-town, new students, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for coming to worship with us this morning. If you want to be turning to page four of your Bibles, and if you need one, you'll find one in the seats in front of you underneath the seat. We're in Genesis chapter four this morning. If you're just joining us, we've got a, a couple weeks left in our summer series on, on the first part of the book of Genesis. And in about three weeks, we'll be starting our fall series on the book of Philippians. But now, still in Genesis. As you're turning there, again, uh, depending on your Bible, probably page three or four to Genesis chapter four. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us, that you invite us to come together to worship you. So we pray right now as we turn to that part of our worship where we hear your word, that we would do that uh, not simply as passive listeners, but as active listeners, learners, worshipers, people in need of your word. We need to hear you speaking. Would you do that? You have for us in Scripture. Make it come alive for us today by the power of your Spirit. So we look to you now expectantly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 4, and we'll be reading the whole chapter. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You should be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to Cain, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. 
Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It's given for our good and for his glory. And so to it we turn this morning. I was thinking this week of uh, a movie, uh, the, the movie that is, of course, the source of all great uh, sermon illustrations, The Lord of the Rings. I know you're not surprised. In the first movie of, of, of that trilogy, there's a scene where Bilbo the Hobbit uh, has a party, a birthday party, which, unbeknownst to anyone else, is also a going-away party. It is his final bow to his town as he's going to sneak off. And uh, a remarkable thing happens in that party as he's... As they're celebrating, he gives this birthday speech. In the middle of it, uh, as unseen by everybody else, he reaches down into his pocket for his ring, his magic ring. And he puts the ring on, and poof, he's gone. He disappears. Everybody's in chaos. And he, as he turns invisible, makes his way up to his house to pack his final bag so that he can, he can leave. He can go on this, his final journey. And as he goes, he comes into his house, and he sees his old friend Gandalf the wizard. And they have a conversation, and they speak of this journey that Bilbo's about to take. And as they're talking, Gandalf says, uh, Bilbo, are you still planning to leave behind the ring for your nephew Frodo? And Bilbo says, yes, I, I am. And he sets it up on the mantelpiece, and then he picks it up again. And he says, although I'm, I'm not so sure, maybe I'm not ready to part with it yet. Gandalf says, but you promised to leave it. And Bilbo rises up in a fury against Gandalf, his friend. You're trying to steal it from me. You're trying to trick it from me. This is my ring. This is my precious. Gandalf says, I'm your friend. I'm not trying to mislead you. I'm trying to help you. Bilbo comes to himself. He realizes what's happening. And he says, you're right, I'm, I'm going to leave it for Frodo. And he puts his bag on his shoulder and picks up his stick, and he's about to walk through the door, and Gandalf says, uh, Bilbo, the ring is still in your pocket. He looks down in pocket, and he pulls it out, and he says, so it is. And you see him just hold it there for a minute. For years he's had this ring, and it's had this inexorable power that has been growing over him. He says he can let it go, but he has so much trouble. He holds it in his fingers and he puts it in his hand and, and the, the camera zooms in and so you see this hand with the ring in it and you hear the dramatic music at this point of tension and he slowly begins to turn his hand and it's like the ring is just clinging to him until it reaches a certain angle and it drops and it hits the floor and when that happens you see Bilbo look up and he takes a deep breath and it's like a spell has been broken he shoulders his bag, and he walks out the door. Now, if you know Lord of the Rings, you know that ring is the source of so much trouble for so many people as it has a hold on them, as they can't let it go, as it entwines itself around their hearts. Now, the power of that, I think, is a picture of the power that lies behind this passage 
as we see Cain struggling, and as we see God speaking to him about sin and the power of sin that has grabbed hold of him. So here's the simple point that we're going to see in chapter 4 here in Genesis. And it's this, that sin always seeks to destroy you. And if it is unmastered, it will do just that. It will kill you. That's what sin seeks to do. That's what we see here. John Owen, 17th century uh, theologian, put it this way. He says, we must always be killing sin or it will be killing you. He says life is a battle for us against our sin and it would overpower us. So that's what we see here in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to see it in, from four different angles. When we see here the occasion of sin, the aim of sin, the results of sin, and we see something of the defeat of sin. Okay, first the occasion of sin. As the chapter opens up, we see uh, Adam and Eve here uh, as the next generation is born. We talked about chapter 3 last week and the fall of mankind as mankind turns their back on God. What is going to happen next? They've been cur- the ground has been cursed. They've been driven out of Eden. What will happen? Is there any hope? Will something be better for the next generation? What's going to happen Next, Well, you see uh, Eve giving birth to her firstborn son, and she says, names him Cain. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And there's a background to that comment. Back in chapter 3, she was given this promise that one day one of your offspring will finally crush the head of the serpent, will finally free you and your people from the dominion of sin that they've fallen under. So she, as the story opens up, could this be the one? I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Well, we're going to see that uh, she couldn't have been more wrong about Cain. So Cain is born as well as his brother Abel. And then we see the scene set before us. Cain, is, uh, a, he's, he's a farmer. He, ro- he raises crops. And his brother Abel is a herdsman. He raises sheep. And both of them bring an offering to the Lord. And it says that Cain brings an offering of uh, the fruit of the field, of the, the harvest from the ground. And it says that... Uh, Abel brings some of the firstborn of his flock. He brings a, a blood sacrifice to God. God says, he, it says he looks at the offering of Abel and he has regard for it, but he does not have regard for the offering of Cain. Okay, he doesn't accept it. Now, w- what's going on? Well, the text doesn't exactly say, but here's a few things we probably know. One is, throughout the Old Testament, as the Old Testament unfolds, we see that God prescribes sacrifices, different kinds of sacrifices. There were blood sacrifices of animals. There were also grain offerings. So likely, there's not, it's not that Cain brought grain and he should have brought a sheep. That's not what's going on. Some people look at this and say, well, the text seems to go out of its way to say that Abel brought maybe the best, the first portion of his flocks. He really brought a costly sacrifice. And Cain simply brought something from the offerings of the ground. And and that might be what's going on here. There seems to be something special about the offering that Abel brings. But whether that's at the heart of it or not, we do see something more about this. And that is the heart. And maybe what is going on here is that even these offerings, God sees past the offerings and he sees past the gesture of the offerings. And he sees straight to the heart of those who bring the offering to him. Because in the Old Testament, sacrifice was never this mechanical solution to our sin that was disconnected from a relationship with God. In other words, the sacrifice for sin, whether it was sacrifices that people brought of grain or of sheep, as in a case like this, God was never a vending machine 
right, where you put in just the right number of sacrificial coins and you hit the button and out pops the product. Relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, healing. It was never like that. It was not this mechanical process. Old Testament is very clear that God looks to the heart of the one who comes and brings a sacrifice. Abel gets mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Here's what it says. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And maybe that's what the author of Hebrews has in mind. That Abel comes and brings this gift, this offering by faith. Something that was missing from the heart of Abel. Or excuse me, from the heart of Cain. But either way, the story doesn't focus so much on the nature of the gift. It focuses on what happens next. Okay, this offering and the way that it is received or not received in each case is the setting for what's going to happen next. We ask ourselves the question, what is Cain going to do? And essentially, that's the question that God asked Cain. Look, he comes to Cain and speaks to him in verse 6. Verse 5, we read that as Cain's offering is not accepted, it says that he became very angry and his face fell. An idiom for, you know what that's, you know what that's like yourself when you are gripped by anger, gripped by sorrow, and your whole countenance is affected. That's what was going on with Cain. It affected him inside and out. And God comes to him and says, why are you angry? Why are you, why is your face fallen? You know, if you do well, will you not be accepted Also, in other words, Cain, this is not the end of the story for you. You, There is a way forward for you here. There's an invitation for you even here. God comes and speaks to Cain at the fork in the road of his life. He is, whether he realizes it or not, standing at this most significant juncture in his life. What is he going to do next? He is angry. He feels rejected. And here God comes to him and invites him back in. He says, Cain, there is a way for you to come forward. Which way are you going to go? Well, we see here the occasion of sin. But God speaks to him now about our second point, the aim of sin. He goes on and says this. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. He gives him this picture. He says this incredibly graphic metaphor. He says, sin, Cain, is crouching at the door. It is right outside the door and your hand is on the handle. The picture here is of this beast that is lurking that would devour him. Crouching, waiting. Maybe the picture the author has in mind goes right back to chapter 3. The serpent waiting for him. Uh, there's also some who think this, this, the Hebrew word for, for crouching here, it's, it's related to an Akkadian word uh, for a demon that was called the croucher. Maybe there's something of that going on here. Think about the graphicness of that. There is something waiting outside your door, Cain, and it will destroy you. Usually in Scripture, when it talks about sin, it talks about the problem of our hearts, the thing on the inside that wells up, which is true. But here, the very first time the word sin is mentioned anywhere in the Bible, it is, it's given this personification, the graphicness of a power that would overwhelm Cain if he doesn't do one thing. God says, you must rule over it. Cain, you stand at this fork in the, in the road of your life and sin is crouching at the door and two, one of two things are going to happen. You're going to open this door and let it in and it will take over. Or you will master it. You will rule over it. 
picture God speaking into him at this decisive moment, much like Gandalf speaking in the life of Bilbo. What are you going to do right now? Are you going to let it go? Now, frankly, we don't believe this. When we think about our wrestling with our own sin, there are several lies that we tend to buy into. Uh, maybe one of them is this. You know, we just we tend to think that sin is manageable, right? I mean, here is this incredibly stark picture of sin, but when we tend to think about the, the places where we wrestle in our own lives, don't we tend to think, you know, I'm not sure that it really has power like this. My sin is manageable. It's not going to overwhelm me. I don't have to worry about this beast crouching at the door. At best, it's got a chain around its neck. It's not like I've given myself to sin. Sin is not a career for me. It's more like a, it's more like a hobby. <laughs> it's more like something I do on the side. You think about how this maybe comes up. I mean, look, it's, it's just harmless chit-chat. Uh, we were just talking about some of our friends and acquaintances. It's not gossip. Right? You're by yourself in your dorm room, you're by yourself in your study and the computer's on. It's just a few, it's just a few pictures. I mean, it's not pornography. It's not video. It could have been a lot worse than that. See, our sin is manageable, isn't it? It can't really have that kind of power on us. It's, it's something maybe that we dabble with, but we don't really believe that it has the power to take us over like this. James 1 says this. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James says there is this organic connection between the desires that come in and take over our lives and the sin that comes from it. And that sin, when it is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Which like here, as God speaks to Cain, he says, there is no playing with sin. There is no managing sin. Its desire is for you. John Owen again said this, sin aims always at the utmost. Your sin is not content to let you simply manage it and fondle it. It would take you over and destroy you. That's what we see here in the life of Cain. Or maybe another lie, not the sin is manageable, but the other one that feels very apparent to many of us. You know, well, my sin is not as bad as those around me. I mean, we could talk about this, but good grief. Have you seen the people on my hall? Have you seen the people at work? I mean, okay, I need to be a little more careful about my expense account. But do you see what happened when we went on the business trip and what these guys did? Do you see... What happens when I do my taxes, but can you imagine what, I mean, this is, we're in the world of Enron. This is nothing. You know, when you look around me, my sin is not as bad as those who inhabit the world around me. Jesus speaks to this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, our sin, all of our sin springs from the heart, and it is a heart issue. He says, we look around and you can say, look, I haven't murdered anybody. And what does Jesus say? He says, when you harbor anger in your heart, you have murdered your neighbor in your heart. Looks around and says, it's only a little lust. He says, look, when you harbor lust in your heart, you have, you have committed adultery in your heart already. See, these are not disconnected things. It is part of the same spectrum. And anger is on the same, misplaced anger is on the same road as murder. And lust and wandering eyes on the same road as adultery. That is where this road ends. But we tend to think my sin is not as bad as 
those around us. It springs from the heart. And the other remedy to this is look up. Our sin doesn't seem as bad to us as the lives of those around us because we spend so much time looking at the lives of those around us. And what does Scripture say? Look up. We serve a holy God, one who is good, who is pure, in whom there is no sin. And He has called us to reflect His image. He says any sin, any struggle is a stain on that. He says look up. But here's another objection, maybe. Okay, sin, it, it's that serious. But look, I'm a Christian. I've been forgiven by Jesus. That forgiveness that nothing can break. So what I do doesn't matter. Okay, now there is a sort of perverse logic to this. Okay? Uh, on the one hand, Scripture certainly does teach that when Christ comes to us and grabs hold of us and brings us literally from death into life in relationship with God, then there is an unbreakable relationship there. He comes and forgives our sin, and we will never feel the penalty of that. But when we take that to say, now we have complete license. I've got nothing to worry about. I have been set free. I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card. And so it does not matter what I do. That betrays the very relationship that God has come to bring us into. Don't you see? God comes to bring us new life so that we would be at peace with Him. So that we would know Him. So that we would walk with Him. So we would have an entirely new kind of life rooted in Jesus. And so when we look and say, look, it's not that big a deal. And at the end of the day, Jesus is going to forgive me anyway. We are giving lie to what this forgiveness came to represent in the first place. He came to bring you into a new life and a new view of life. And if we continue to find joy in our sin, then it should make us go back and ask this question. Have we found the real Jesus at all? Because he came not to set us free to sin, but to set us free from sin. That we might know him in entirely new life. So when we come to that point of abusing the grace of God, it should make us rightly ask this question. God's grace is unbreakable, but have I really tasted that? Is that really what I've gotten a hold of? And then a fourth, last uh, lie that may, we often may believe, maybe it's this. We are, in the end of the day, powerless to resist our sin. Some of us feel this very acutely as we look at places of continual wrestling, continual failing and falling in our life. Is there really any power to fight sin at all? It's easy to think we are only victims in this battle. Well, here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says this to believers in Jesus, those who have been set free from the penalty of their sin. He says, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What's he saying? When you come to Christ, he says, the, the dominion, the ruling power of sin has been broken. There is a new power at work in your life by the power of the Spirit that actually allows us now, believers in Jesus, to say no to our sin. Now, Scripture is very clear. We will continue to wrestle with it. But, he, but Paul says here that its mastery is broken. And by the power of the Spirit living in us, we can say no to sin. We can resist it. We will struggle with it. We will fail. We will be continually in need of forgiveness. But there is power because of the Spirit to actually fight back now. We are called to a Spirit-led battle against our sin. Okay, so we see the occasion of sin, the aim of our sin. We're going to see now the results of our sin, going back to verse 8. Okay, so here's here's the situation. Cain has been presented with this monumental choice. 
And up until this point in the narrative, Cain has not said one word. God has come to him and spoken to him and said, Cain, you are right on the edge. It leaves us wondering, what are we going to do? And we expect to hear Cain say something to God, but instead we hear silence. What do we see? We see what Cain does. And we see some of the brilliance of the narrator of Genesis. Years ago, I was an English teacher for a while. One of the things that I would say to my students when they're writing essays is show, don't tell. Show, don't tell. Let me see your point. Make it for me. Don't just give me the, don't just give me the summary point at the end. Develop it. Let me see it in action. And that's what we see here. We don't, we don't see the narrator saying, and Cain decided to disregard God's voice. What do we see instead? We see what, what Cain does. Cain does speak. What are his next words? He goes to his brother, Abel, the one who made the good sacrifice. The younger brother who always got it right. Come on, younger brother. Let's go for a walk. What does he say? He comes and speaks to Abel. And they go out into the field. And he kills him. Now, we can read right past that. I forget the statistics. But for most of us growing up with TVs and movies, by the time we're adults, we've seen something like four trillion murders and deaths on the screen, right? Cain's never seen one. And he takes him out to the field. And he kills him. Later on in Deuteronomy, we read that a crime committed out in the field was considered to be premeditated because it was in a setting where no one else could hear the screams. No one else could be a witness to see what happened. Cain takes him out. Cain opens the door to the one crouching outside, lets it in, goes his own way rather than listening to the voice of God with tragic results. Tragic results first for Abel, the first murder, a life extinguished. If you go back and read chapter 4, parallel to chapter 3, there are a lot of similarities between the two chapters, between what Cain wrestles with and what Adam and Eve are presented with. There is a temptation, and there is a falling into that temptation. Adam and Eve tempted to take this fruit that represents disobedience to God, a bite of fruit. What do we see in chapter 4? A murder. It's been raised a notch. It's been raised a lot of notches. In, the first, in chapter 3, we see Cain, or we see Adam and Eve confronted by God as he comes walking in the garden. And God says to Adam and Eve, where are you? And Adam comes out and he says, I'm here, but I'm hiding because I'm naked. And the woman that you gave me, blame shifting, but what does he do? He comes out into the open. What happens when God comes to Cain? And he comes and speaks to him. Look in verses 8 and 9. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Outright lie to God. And the ironic twist at the end. Is it my job to watch after him? And if we were slow readers and didn't get the point, four times in verses 8 and 9, he's referred to as Cain's brother. Your brother, your brother, where is your brother? The intimacy of relationship broken. Cain's response of outright defiance and lie. Tragic results for Abel, but also tragic results for Cain. 
Look at this. Again, Adam and Eve in their sin, their, the curse is given to the serpent. The curse is given to the ground. The woman is told she will have great pains in childbirth. There will be marital disharmony. The man, that you will only raise food by the sweat of your brow. All your work is going to be frustrated. But in chapter 3, the man and the woman themselves are not cursed. Everything around them is. But they are not said to be cursed. But what happens here with Cain? God speaks to him and says, you are cursed from the ground, Cain. The seriousness, again, raised a notch in the life of Cain. Cain is driven out even further from the presence of God. Adam and Eve pushed out to the east of Eden. Cain pushed out even further east to the land of Nod, the land translated of wandering. Adam and Eve pushed away from God's presence. Cain pushed away from God's presence in the presence of the rest of society there. What does he say? He says, this is more than I can bear. If anybody sees me, they're going to kill me. That's how bad this is. God, in a moment of extreme mercy with Cain, says, Not so. I will protect your life. But Cain knows that he has been driven not only from God, but from the rest of mankind. And we see, thirdly, not only that Cain that he has tragic results for, for Abel, for Cain himself, but we see that it has tragic results for those who come after Cain. Cain, and that's what we see in all this uh, genealogy in the rest of the chapter. Cain is the father of a long line of descendants, a long line of descendants who happen to follow Cain's lead away from their God, further and further away. Cain sets a course for his own family line. He inherited sin from his father and he passes it along to the, sin, to the children that come after him. This is not a determining course for his children. It's not that it necessarily locks them into a life they cannot break out of, but it is a strong influence. And it influences his whole family. Gets, we see the full fruit of this when we get down to Lamech, verses 19 through 24. Here we have seventh, the seventh generation from Adam. And, and in the Bible, the number seven often represents a number of, of completion. Of a fullness of something. And so we get in the seventh generation here. Down through the line of Cain. His great, 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 great grandson. Lamech who says. You know Cain. If anybody killed him they were going to be avenged. Well a young man has come after me. And I have killed him. If Cain was avenged sevenfold. I'm avenged seventy-sevenfold. Do you hear the proud boast? As he speaks not to his wife, but to his two wives, society falling apart in so many ways. You see, Cain's sin has effects not only for Abel, not only for himself, but for a whole line of those who come after him. The sins of the father are passed down to their children. The influences of family are passed down to generations and generations. And it's the same for us. Tragic results of our own sin as we fall into it. Results for ourselves. Results for those that we sin against, for those around us and after us. As one pastor I had years ago used to say, we don't sin in a vacuum. It never happens off on the side as if it only affected us. Others are always drawn in because our lives are intertwined with the lives of those around us. We do not sin in a vacuum. It causes death and destruction not only for us, but for all we come in contact with. Okay, we see the occasion of sin, the aim of sin, the results of sin. Is there any hope for sin? We get glimpses here, finally, of the defeat of sin. Because after this terrible lineage of Cain, it switches back for one more instance to the line of Adam. And look again, see what it says there at the end of chapter 4. 
Verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What's the author doing? He's reminding us the story did not end there. And for Adam and Eve, it didn't end. What happens? She gives birth to another son. Another ray of hope for her. Could this be the one? Or could the one come one day through the line of this son? Will Seth do better? Will better fruit come from him? See, God's mercy is all over, even this chapter of darkness. God comes to Cain at this moment, this decisive moment, and in grace speaks to him. He says, Cain, it does not have to go this way. There is a chance for you yet. Turn around. And Cain, in the midst of his sin, God has mercy on him even then. He does not kill him in that moment as he deserves. He says, I'm going to spare your life. And then we come here back to Adam and Eve and we see God continues to have mercy. He does not let the story end here, but he gives him another son, Seth. And this genealogy shows up again later in the Bible. It shows up at the end of a long genealogy in the book of Luke, chapter 23. Genealogy that begins with Jesus, the son of Joseph. Goes through generation after generation, and chapter 3, verse 37 picks up here. The son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And he says, This line does not end, but it extends through the years and comes to the one that they were hoping for. It comes right through this genealogy to Jesus. He says, There is a hope for the defeat of our sin. There is a hope for one who will finally come and bring us rescue and peace. We've seen this very dramatic picture of Cain with sin crouching at his door, ready to pounce on him, destroy him. This picture almost of a demon ready to rip him to pieces. We see this later descendant of Cain Not hearing about a metaphorical beast crouching outside the door, but in the desert, in the presence of Satan himself, who would tear him apart. Who would tempt him to turn away from the path that God had laid for him. And unlike Cain, Jesus does not turn aside. He does not give in. He does not fall for the temptation. And Satan runs howling into the wilderness because here is one that he could not defeat. He could not turn. That happens at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. As he comes into the desert, faces Satan, wins a victory there, and now steps into a life of calling the lost to himself. People like us. People who also face those decisive moments in our own lives. Are we going to open the door or not? People like us who have opened the door time and time again. Is there any shutting of it? Is there any healing from it? Is there any strength for it? Cain faced a crouching beast and lost. Christ faced a greater enemy and won for us. And we see that finally as he takes the death that Cain deserved right here. And And the death that we deserve. Consequence for our sin, for our opening of the door. He takes it on the cross pays the penalty for our sin that we might be set free, that the door might be shut, 
that we might be brought back into a relationship with God that was broken but is not irreparable because of Jesus, His power at work for us. And when we put our faith in this Jesus, this one who comes to do what we could not do, this one who came and kept the door closed whereas we never have been able to, we find two things. One, forgiveness for the sin. Healing, relational restoration with our God. It is possible and is brought to us in Jesus. And secondly, as God comes and forgives us of our real sin and wipes the slate clean and makes us forever right in His sight. He comes in and He brings the power of the Spirit at work in us as well that our lives might more and more begin to look like the beauty that He originally designed and has been so marred. He comes in so that for us now, believers in Christ... The door, as it is presented to us day after day after day, really can't stay closed. We really can't take our hand away from the handle. We really can say no. We really can walk away from the temptation and the sin that assaults us. And we really can walk in intimacy and closeness with our God, knowing this all along. We are not perfect people. And we will not be until the day Jesus returns. But he has come to bring real spiritual life and vitality. And one day he comes to bring ultimate victory over sin in our lives. Our lives do not have to go the way of Cain and in Christ they won't. Let me just close with this. Again, back to John Owen, all these quotes from his book. The mortification of sin, the killing of sin. Here's what he says. And where Owen staked his hope in the midst of a book very strong on the the responsibility that we have to fight against our sin as believers. Here's where his ultimate hope was. He says this, Jesus' blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this, and thou will die a conqueror. Yea, thou wilt, through the good providence of God, live to see thy lust dead at thy feet. What's he saying? There is a final victory for us in Christ. He is coming back and we are going to know one day the taste of a life with no sin at all. Completely healed. Broken the power, the dominion of it now. One day we will be freed from the very presence of it in Jesus. That is the promise given to us. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as we look at this very sobering picture of the reality of our struggle with sin. And Lord, for many of us, even right now, maybe asking this question, I have opened the door so many times. Could it be that God's forgiveness extends that far? And the glorious promise of the gospel is yes. Some of us struggling even now because we name the name of Christ. We really do believe in you. We see your power at work. But still, we are struggling with sins that no one even knows about. Would you bring healing? Would you bring deep conviction? Would you remind us of the glory of the gospel that we stand perfect and forgiven in your sight? And may that, by the power of the Spirit, give us the strength to say no. Would you give us the courage to come out and to let others in, to seek the help that we need, to bring the darkness to the light that we might be healed. Because we proclaim boldly on the strength of the gospel that the power of Jesus' blood is stronger than any sin in which we find ourselves. The offer of the gospel is the most powerful thing at work in this universe. Save us, heal us, give us joy. 
May we have lives that have the beauty of holiness. May that be a testimony to you. May it show the world around us a picture of the goodness and the holiness and the beauty of you, our Lord. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.